1: Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment.
2: That's cloudoptimizer.com.
0: Slate Money is sponsored by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet, and get a free 30-day trial by visiting gotomeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Automatic for the People edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon, a fusion, and I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. And Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hi, Felix. Hello, Jordan, and um, happy... Pi day if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, it's three one four one five, maybe it's nine twenty three in the morning.
0: Oh wow, that's amazing.
2: It could be, and if it is. Good for you. you once are a century fantastic.
0: once a century moment we're passing here.
2: Um, we are going to revisit, because this is what we do. We read our emails, and our emails say things like, You mentioned odious debt. That's a fascinating concept. Can you talk more about odious debt, please? And then we say, Yes, of course we can, because that's how nice we are. So we're going to do that. And we are going to talk about robo-advisors and robot wars. It's fun. And we will... Obviously, talk about the Apple Watch because I don't think we could have a Jordan Weissman pod- podcast without talking about the Apple Watch. That is going to be let's Jordan's, blame Jordan. That's going to be Jordan's <laughs> segment at the end of the episode. Blame if you have heard, the if you have heard more than you can possibly. Put up with about the Apple Watch. You can listen to the first two segments and then just yeah. Start.
1: We're we're sa- really we're saving the best for last. <laughs> Excuse me. Anyway, let's go.
2: Kathy, tell us about ODS Ste.
0: So, <clears throat> Philip Stern, one of our wonderful podcast listeners, thank you, Philip Stern, um, wrote to us and mentioned that we should think about talking about the um, something called the preemptive contract sanction. Pre- what do you think is a preemptive contract sanction? Well, the idea is it's somewhere between going to war. And not going to war and putting you know like sanctions on a country that is behaving badly it 's basically saying you' the, the money you 're borrowing is odious, and we the uh, influential other countries that think you're you're a bad country will not consider it legitimate and
2: so okay so to let's let's like rewind a little bit here, yeah, um there are sanctions, yeah, so if i don 't like what Iran is doing, say, right. then what I can do is I can impose sanctions on Iran or Russia or countries like that and say, no American company is allowed to do business with Syria, say. Right. That's right. Um, which is fine. And that is a way of, it does have negative repercussions on the economy of Syria or Iran or Russia or whatever country you're de- talking about. But those things are bilateral. And so the Syrians can still you know, wind up buying arms from the Russians or the Chinese or exactly. something like that. Exactly.
0: Felix, that is exactly the example that is given by um, the Center for Global Development, which which is promoting this idea. There's a video on the Center for Global Development's website that explains like that in, in, in spite of the fact that a bunch of countries, the EU and the United States and some Arab countries as well, are putting sanctions on Syria, um, th- the president Assad is still borrowing money and buying arms from Russia, and borrowing money and buying oil from China. Okay, okay so, they, so it's not, it's not oil quite as... Oh, sorry. Quite a, so, yeah. Sorry, excuse me. I said that wrong.
2: It's yeah. not quite as simple as that. It's not like he's going to his local bank, borrowing money, and then using the money to buy arms. It's all vendor finance. So what happens is that the Russian arms company or the Chinese arms company will do a deal with the Syrian government and say, we will give you, a, you know million dollars worth of arms and then you owe us a million dollars mm-hmm. so it's you know so the point is that it's actually a way of getting around the financial system well, precisely because you can't access the financial system directly
1: but i the point that i guess going back to this idea of odious debt or declaring debt odious is that a country like the united states or great britain which has major which controls major major financial centers we have new york in england there's london of course. Um, ...can then say, okay, sure, you guys set up these arms deals, these oil deals, whatnot, but if the Assad government ever falls, and the next government doesn't want to pay back that loan, you're going to have to litigate that somewhere, and since we're the world's financial centers, there's a good chance the case is going to come through one of our courts... And we're gonna consider that debt illegitimate. Yes. And so the idea is then that you're gonna make it very difficult for them to get a loan or do that kind of vendor finance anywhere in the world with any country because no one's gonna be sure if the next government, if there is a next government, will actually enforce it, will actually honor it.
0: So I was just gonna ask Felix, because I think Felix is the expert in this room, on how this actually would play out. Like let's let's assume that nothing there was no no such de- declaration of odious debt. And um like the arms dealers in Russia in ten years, were like, give give me my money. What would actually happen?
2: So the way it would work, and this happens all the time, is you get countries like Romania, who you know have bought a bunch of tractors from you know some French company or something, and then the French company is owed a bunch of money by the Romanian government. The Romanian government defaults on that debt, and then the French uh, company, rather than trying to sue the Romanian government, which is not something that French tractor companies are generally very good at, will take that debt and will sell it to um a vulture fund, basically, to, to a hedge fund who will then litigate and negotiate and try and get something in return for, you know, its debt from the Romanian government because that's what they do. do. And and so the debt becomes tradable. And what you wind up doing invariably is dealing with governments who are two or three governments in succession from the one which actually did the original deal. But it is a absolutely bedrock principle of sovereign debt that if, it, if a sovereign borrows money, then it's the sovereign's job to pay it back no matter who the government is. And the international financial markets frown very much on any idea that a successor government can say, well, it wasn't me who borrowed the debt. It was that, you know, fucker succeeded and I didn't like what he was doing so why should I have to pay it back that is not how sovereign debt works
0: right so obviously this this idea of declaring a debt odious would have a lot of people very uneasy especially if the idea were to do it in retro like retroactively no
2: so so the idea is is explicitly not to do it exactly retroactively. that's why it's called a preemptive and so and so contract. a lot of the discussion about odious debt is precisely um saying things like well, you should have known if you were lending money to Idi Amin that this guy was very evil, and so you, you those debts should not get paid back. Or you know, name your dictator, um, and that has never really managed to get off the ground. But what the CGD is proposing is something more realistic, which is just going forward. They're saying you can, you know, if if Assad borrowed money up until yesterday. That's fine. And that's a legitimate sovereign debt, which any successor government is going to have to recognize. But from here on in, he can't do it anymore. And there's and, and if he borrows money tomorrow, then if that debt ever winds up being litigated in London or New York, which are the only places that debt contracts ever get litigated. Okay, that was the other question I was um, Then ask. we are going to say, you know what, that's odious and you don't get to be paid back yeah, on it.
1: So the 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 preemptive aspect of it is what makes this sound a little less I guess makes it sound less fringy and more sort of just like kind of turning the notch up on sanctions. It sounds like it's one more kind of weapon in the arsenal as opposed to something totally out there. I mean basically you're just saying, okay, we're already telling our banks you can't lend. We've already said that Citibank can't go and give money to Syria. Now we're just saying that our courts aren't going to enforce it. Well, exactly? Anything. And I think And it, so that it's sort of the next it's sort of the next Logical step in a way, right?
0: Exactly. That's why I I said at the beginning that they they frame this as something between sanctions and going to war, and I think that's the right way to think about it. It's basically the U.S. and London have decided we really don't want um, people to do business with Syria. They don't want to have to go to war, but they, maybe they can turn the screws on the other countries that are not in the in the sa- sanctions with them. Yeah, and this I, is a way to make the costs higher for Russia.
1: I, I guess yeah, from a another perspective or. From like a foreign relations perspective, you'd see why this would anger China or would anger Russia more because all of a sudden you're interfering with their own commerce and they're saying, well, we're not sanctioning them. But I guess, but we 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 essentially do the same thing every time we say, okay, we're not going to clear payments through the Federal Reserve anymore. When we essentially cut off Iran from the financial, the U.S. financial system, we're effectively cutting them off from the global financial system. We're so, using the fact that yeah. we're using the power that we have because yeah. we have the financial system. It's not like we've ever and court system. It's not like we've shied away from doing that in
2: other it, it, respects. It's called it's called extraterritoriality, yeah. and it's it's something which you know if you've got it then it makes sense to use it, because otherwise, what's the point in having it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it essentially is about power more than about finance, is my point. And
2: it's about, and it's, yeah, it's about taking that sort of soft power that you have as a financial center and, and using it, directing it against your enemies.
0: So what could Russia do in response to this?
2: So if we did this to Russia, then basically what would happen is that Russia would be forced to either just pay for everything directly... In cash, and I mean Russia has a lot of reserves, it has a lot of cash, or do deals you know directly where they would swap oil for goods, or just have very short term debt contracts where you are reasonably certain that you're going to get repaid so you know within the amount of time that Putin is president, or that you know um, if you know that that's its options, or you just take the credit risk and you assume that your debt is going to be worthless. If and when Russia defaults and some other government um, replaces them, it's not like you can stop people from, you know, selling stuff to Russia and even taking paper, you know, credit in return. They just need to know that they're not going to be able to litigate that credit.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting.
2: So that's odious debt. It's a very interesting idea and. Exactly. Frankly, not very likely to happen. But it, it, you it's know, it's a first step. Anything I, I possible. I
0: really like the idea of framing debt as sort of a moral issue. Actually, it, I,
1: I do wonder well, why is it not likely? Because again, it doesn't seem that radical to me. Sorry yeah. to bring us back to the topic. Yeah, but, no, I agree. But, no, no. But why? Why is it so unlikely to happen? I, I guess is there a good re- is there a reason why now that it would be sort of off the table? Or
2: I mean, it, one of the reasons is frankly just a separation of powers thing. Okay. That you know, um, decisions about sanctions and war and like you are evil and that kind of thing tend to be made by the executive branch or by the State Department or by the Defense Department, you know, um, and not by the judiciary, which is really the bit which is in charge of this end of the stick, as it were. And and it's hard for people in the government yeah. to tell the judiciary what they can oh, and can't look, do.
1: I- I guess that, yeah, to some degree. But I wonder, I mean, Congress could pass a bill explicitly saying, like, this debt is not enforceable. I mean, like, this seems like something that the, you know, Capitol Hill could deal with if they wanted to. If they wanted to. If they wanted. To. If they really didn't want to go to yeah. war. But yeah.
2: but but then again, you know, as I say, this, this kind of thing normally happens by the executive branch and not the legislative branch. So, yeah, I think it would have to go through the legislative branch and... That's always... That's uh, always... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need Congress. to pass laws. When was the last time we passed a law in this country? <laughs> um, in any case... I do need to tell you about GoToMeeting. Citrix GoToMeeting is our sponsor. We like them very much. Love them. And you may remember this from previous episodes, but it's true all the same. Citrix GoToMeeting, it makes it easy to meet with your team and to just manage to get things done when you're not... All in the same room at the same time, because you can meet from your phone from your computer you don't have travel expenses you don 't have to deal with traffic you don't need to deal with rain you don't need to deal with planes, you just have a webcam or a phone, and you have h d quality you're there in the room everyone sees you, you see them, you share your screen so this is what you do. try it out. this is all we 're asking. Give it a go, try go to meeting free for thirty days, and all you need to do this is Go to go to meeting.com and click the try it free button. That's go to meeting.com. Now, robot wars. Oh yeah. So <laughs>
1: one of my favorite topics. Sadly not the kind where robots actually fight. Those this are is, awesome too.
2: Those are, are also those, those are, are awesome. awesome. A few years ago, I had lunch with a guy called Andy Ratcliffe. And he sat me down at this wonderful restaurant in Soho and started talking about the capital asset pricing model and the efficient frontier and sharp ratios, and my I, I was like, I, I half wanted to just get up and leave. I was like, this is the most you know haven't we learned how bullshit all of this stuff is? hasn't the Have we learned nothing from the financial crisis? But I heard him out, and um, it turns out that what he was selling was a very interesting new product. Um, and it's a fanta- financial innovation of types. And in general, I'm very suspicious of financial innovations. But this one I kind of like. And I think it's a little bit like the ETF or the index fund. It's something which makes something complicated easy. And, and it democratizes a lot of stuff which used to be only available to the very rich.
0: Can I just uh, can I just suggest, yes. an- please anticipate that I'm going to try to make you more skeptical about this.
2: I, I'm looking forward to it. Okay. So, in any case, what, so, okay, let me, let's, let's come at this a different way. Um, Kathy. Yeah. Do you have or believe in the concept of a target date fund?
0: Um, I, I do not.
2: Okay. You, you do not believe in that? (laughs) No. Okay. So this is, so let's, okay. So let's, let's let's explain what that Let's explain what a target date fund is. Um, Jordan, what is a target date fund?
1: I believe it's you pick your target date for when you want to retire, when you have or if you have a big purchase that you want to make or something along those lines you're you're trying to save for a house and then you tell your investment advisor this is my goal and then they give you a portfolio. They basically set up a portfolio that says this is what's going to help you meet that goal. And so if you go and like, what, I think it's Fidelity is the commercial with the green line that like leads from the person's bedsheet all the way to their dream home or something. <laughs> or, or like whatever, like into like their retirement in like a field of like wildflowers so or the something. Way, so that is a target date fund. So the yes. way,
2: the, 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 the main innovation in target date funds, um, and they're mostly a retirement product, is that people understand or people, you know, have generally come to the conclusion that if you're 25 years old and saving for retirement, what you should be doing is have quite a lot of equities in your stock portfolio, because that's where you're going to get the big long-term returns. On the other hand, if you're 63 years old and saving for retirement, you don't want that much risk. You want to make sure that the you know even if the stock market plunges by 20% in the two years between now and then, you're still going to be okay. So you have fewer stocks and more safer things like bonds. And what the target date fund does is it automatically does that asset allocation math for you. And so when you're younger or when you're further away from the target date, you'll have more stocks and fewer bonds. You know, when you're closer to retirement or your target date, then you'll have more bonds and fewer stocks. And it will automatically reinvest dividends and it will do all of the rebalancing and everything. So if the stock market soars up, then you won't suddenly have too many stocks in your portfolio because it will sell some of those and buy bonds to keep the ratios where they should be. It does a lot of that, you know, natural rebalancing which you kind of want to do, but no one is, no one cares enough or has the time to do themselves, and it does it automatically. So that's the target date fund. The gold standard of target date funds is Vanguard. Um, they uh, they do the right kind of passive investment. They don't charge big fees. They're not really a for profit even in the first place. And so, the first piece, the first and last piece of investment advice that 99% of people ever need is just put all of your money in the Vanguard target date fund. Or at least it always used to be before I spoke to Kathy. Well,
0: here's the thing I mean, there's two problems I have with it. One is that it it oversimplifies in a certain way like it it doesn't it makes it seem like you your investment in in the market is simply a one-dimensional question of how long how many years until retirement and in, in that sense it doesn't actually engage you whatsoever in the concept of like what kind of company do you want to invest in it it makes it seem almost like completely sanitized from what's actually happening in the market which i think is a problem just sort of you know in a kind of philosophical sense. The thing I actually have a problem with directly about these funds, though, is that they're so, because they have prospectuses that sort of explain how the rebalancing is gonna happen, like if equities go up and bonds go down, which they're usually counter with each other, um, then they're gonna sell equities at the end of the three months and buy bonds. And anything that's predictable on the market, anything that's predictable, is easy to pick off by other traders. So when you, when you put your money in a fund like this, you are putting your money in a very predictable thing. And so the, the market kind of anticipates, they're basically front runs, they front run the, the, these kinds of funds. And I think that's a problem for your money. So in terms of, I'm not saying it's a bad idea to invest more in risky things like equities earlier in your life. I just think that you should just do it. I, okay,
2: I, so I completely disagree the fact is that you can't do it nearly as efficiently as Vanguard can, that Vanguard is rebalancing daily, it's very hard to front-run the S&P 500, and that even if there is a certain amount of um, difficulty on what's known as execution at Vanguard, which is basically what you're talking about when you're talking about front-running, you're saying they can't get the absolute perfect best execution for their stock trades and their bond trades, That. Might be true, but they're going to get much better execution than you are if you're going to try to do it yourself.
0: I, I'm what I'm suggesting is, and I, I don't want to argue with you forever about this. It's not that important to me. These are we're talking about people who have money. Okay, I care more about people who don't even have retirement money. But um, what I'm what I mean to say is, if you're if you're really rebalancing every day, then then you have too money. Transaction costs. If you're not rebalancing every day, then you're rebalancing in a big way, and it is actually um, easy to 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 front run that kind of thing on futures.
2: Okay, so Kathy, I understand your your worries here, and I'm pretty sure that they they don't have a huge way. No one is rebalancing these things in each individual account every day, but there is a lot of internal netting that these companies can do, and you only rebalance when you get to a certain degree out of whack. And no one knows really when any individual account becomes out of whack. It's, much harder to front run than you think. I don't think front running is a big problem beyond just the general problem of front running in all big institutional accounts.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's let's step back a little bit. I mean, I'm basically just basically I'm saying that there's a lot of in, sort of hard to track invisible fees going on here, and I think that's also my, also my biggest complaint about the robo funds, which were supposed to be talking
2: okay. About. So let's talk, let's
1: talk about, about the, the robo funds, ro- the robot wars, because so far we have not discussed robots, and frankly, I'm appalled.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I came okay. in, I came, I was told there would be robots. So, so let me explain the robots. Yep. Basically, what happens is, first of all, you you had this company called Wealthfront. Um, and then another company came along called Betterment. And what they said was, you know, that if you look at what Vanguard is doing in target date funds, it's like a really stupid robot. It has a single axis, which it moves up and down. It has two asset classes, stocks and bonds. And it moves, you know, very slowly down one axis. Whereas if you're a reasonably sophisticated investor... You should be invested in much more asset classes than just two. You should be invested in corporate bonds, international bonds, international stocks, small caps, you know, try and get everything in the world rather than just the big American companies and, uh, you know, one bond fund. And so they said, what we're going to do is we're going to use some pretty, you know, basically understood um, financial science, you know, around these things like the capital asset pricing model and create optimal portfolios for any given risk level. And, you know, are all these optimal portfolios going to be absolutely optimal? No, of course not. But they're going to be better than you'll be able to do yourself. And we're going to make it very easy. It's going to be just the same thing. You put all of your money into one account, and then we will asset asset allocate, we will rebalance, we will worry about the execution problems, we will take all of these problems and take them away from you and just deal with it ourselves. And you will get Better, you know, for any given level of risk that you're taking, you will have a higher return than you would be able to get on your own.
0: Okay, and my my biggest complaint is I actually worked on this when I worked my first six month at Risk Metrics was working on what was called Wealth Manager, where it was the computer program that did this. It's actually like what I worked on, and what I noticed is that the banks who used the product, they stuck in the assumptions right that. That the actual tr- the asset allocation used to decide how much to put in corporate bonds, how much to put in bonds, et cetera, and stocks, and the actual sort of assumptions which were like what how how quickly do these things grow, how related, how correlated are these things, how related are they to each other, they were completely random. I mean, I, they were very very um, strange numbers that were put in there. So I guess what I'm saying is you tell you know again it comes down to oversimplifying. I think the robo funds are asking you to say how risk averse are you? Yeah. That one thing, which is only one dimensional thing, and then it plugs in a bunch of assumptions and and comes out with a portfolio. So
2: okay, so Jordan, my my feeling here is yeah. that Kathy is way too sophisticated here worrying about <laughs> correlation matrices and that yeah. yes for, if you're a super super sophisticated investor, you might care about correlation matrices but Ninety-nine percent of us are never going to care about them.
1: That's, I think, to some degree. I, what I find funny about them. Okay, so I should do a little bit of uh, background for for listeners. I, I, you know, I'm 28. I have never had much money in my life. I am just now getting to the point where I have a piddly enough sum that is worth, or a a a, a piddly sum that is still worth putting in the market and like for for retirement. And so I've actually been shopping around, trying to figure out, like, okay, how do I, you know, diversify this? Where do I put it? And I, I've been checking out some of these robo investors. And one thing I notice is they they do they give you essentially a questionnaire. They say, how risk averse are you? If this were to happen in the market, would you, you know, a scale of one to ten, are you this worried about risk? Are you this worried? If if the market would go down, would you reinvest? Would you take all of your shares and sell them and run for the hills? What would you do? Right. And one thing I noticed is that when you make very small alterations to your answers to those questions, it actually can pretty vastly change the portfolio they give you if you just do it multiple times. And in ways that like, you know, at this mo you know, at midnight when I was doing it the first time, I decided my on a scale of one to five, I'd answer four on this question. Second time, I decided I'd answer three on this question. And so, I think it probably depends on the quality uh, or my, my my intuition here is it probably kind of depends on the quality of, of the program they're using that those fine differences aren't going to lead you in vastly different directions but um, there is like just a little bit of innate skepticism I feel about some of it uh, about how I guess that to some degree maybe they're they're selling a a, a false um, a false assurance about uh, about precision here
2: so yeah I mean it's impossible to be completely precise, yeah. and they are Slightly more sophisticated than they look. If they know that you're a young man, for instance, young men always overestimate their own risk appetite, and so they'll kind of naturally bring that down a bit. That's probably true. Um,
0: <laughs> That's interesting. They really
1: do that. Yeah.
2: And one of the other—that's
1: offensive. <laughs>
2: no, no, it's not. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> and but but one of the other things they all do is they say, you know, we're not replacing financial advisors here. So you know, if you have questions like, should I um, put this money into you know, my retirement savings, or should I use it to pay down my mortgage? You know, a question like that. That's not a question they're going to answer. That's a very personal question which you need an advisor to do. And all of these people have products which they sell to advisors. And so the advisors basically get to outsource the crappy asset allocation, rebalancing, dividend reinvestment, and all that stuff to the robots while giving you sort of personalized advice. And they can help you a little bit in terms of trying to work out exactly what your, you know, risk profile is and that kind of thing. But I just do want to get to the actual news here, which we're going to get to eventually, (laughs) which is that the big granddaddy of the the brokerage houses, Charles Schwab, has just come out with one of these robot advisors itself. And their big selling point is, hey, we are doing it for free.
0: Except... Are they?
2: Except are they? And this is where, like, and this is where when when Kathy started talking about hidden fees, I was like, "You have no idea about hidden fees because you know, there are possibly hidden fees to high frequency traders on the execution front, but these are, you know, one or two basis points. They're tiny. What we're talking about in the hidden fees in the Charles Schwab product are much, much bigger than that. Because here's the catch in the Charles Schwab product. They have decided that cash is an asset class. So they're not just going to divvy your investments up between stocks and bonds and maybe some commodities or real estate or something. They're also going to have somewhere between 6% and 30% of your portfolio is going to be in cash. Yeah, And guess where the cash is held?
0: In their accounts.
2: In a Charles Schwab bank account, paying right now 0.12% in interest. And so they then, of course, because they're Charles Schwab Bank, they make, I think it's one point seven billion dollars a year right now, in what's known as net interest income, which is basically we borrow cheap and lend expensive, and we'll make the difference. So that's the big hidden fee. Well, there's
0: also the other hidden fees, which is that they send your money, that they in equities, the the part they put in equities to their. Schwab equity ETF, and they charge fees for that.
2: Yes. And they've also invented this thing. Well, they haven't invented this thing, but they've really bought into this thing called, um, it's either called fundamental indexing or smart beta, where you basically, you're not buying an index fund. You're buying something which is designed to outperform index funds. Which is not an index fund. <laughs> which is, <like laughs> which is, which is not an index so, fund.
0: So, I mean, Wait, so, so, let me just say- but Just
2: like, to be very clear about this, the hidden fees on the smart beta Charles Schwab funds are much smaller than the hidden fees on the cash.
0: Well, that, okay. So that's one thing. But I guess the, the larger question is, is this actually the robo-advisors? Are they Do they have fewer f- hidden fees, all told, than the actual wealth advisors? And my guess is probably...
2: Much lower.
1: So,
0: I mean, much, it's much still lower. an improvement, but that's an improvement over a
1: pretty corrupt industry. On the other hand, it's also, I mean, one of the reasons a lot of people in the kind of, I, I guess the financial advisor blogosphere have been getting have been up in arms about this is putting that much cash or putting that much of your money into cash just isn't necessarily sound advice at this point like
2: well, it, 30, well okay 30, so 30, having cash is always a good yeah, idea yeah but that much that's no, a no, 30% well, 30% no is well, yeah so let's let's make a very 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 important distinction here yeah. um one of the reasons why wealthfront um, has a $5,000 minimum is precisely because they say if you don't have $5,000 to invest, then you shouldn't be investing at all. Yeah. Um, the first thing you need before you start investing is cash. Yeah. You should have roughly six months worth of expenses in cash, it, just in a savings account, it, before you even start thinking about investing.
1: It's the basic Susie Orman advice. Yes. Like, yeah. That, that, yeah. That is, that's
0: part of what I was saying before. People do that naturally. They don't put every single cent into investment. Yeah,
2: and no one is saying that they should. Right. So the so then the question so what happens is Charles Schwab says well, you know, it's very good to have a certain amount of cash. And yes it is. But, we but that cash needs to be liquid. It yes. needs to be something which you can take out as cash. Yeah. If you're having your cash in a black box at Charles Schwab, it's not cash. It has no liquidity. If you try to take that cash out, then you can't because you know you sell a certain percentage of your portfolio and you wind up selling a whole bunch of stocks and a whole bunch of bonds just to get a little bit of cash so out.
0: really what they've done is redefine the concept of cash
2: basically, what they've done yeah. is they've taken they've taken cash, which has costs and benefits. The cost is that you get no return on it. The benefits is it's illiquid it is that it's highly highly liquid, and they've managed to keep all of the costs but lose all of the benefits
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean like and they're you know their their public statements. About this at the moment It's like, well, in the market in these conditions, cash is a good idea, like because there there's so much uncertainty and the Old yada. kind of cash, yeah, it's, good like, there, it's yeah. a good idea. Well, but like, but it's really it's Charles Schwab cash. It's yeah. like, and it, what's more, they're saying it will
2: yeah. always be a good idea. Yeah. one of the other things they did is they're saying, well, look at, um, you know, this BlackRock fund which is fifty billion dollars and that has fifteen percent cash right now. That's a market timing thing. That's the portfolio manager of that fund, who's an active manager trying to outperform the market, is saying I need like dry powder so that when the market goes down, I can buy a bunch of stuff. He doesn't want to always have cash. He just wants to have cash right now so that he can buy stuff when things fall.
0: So do we think yeah. this is a good product, or do you think this is... so?
2: I, so to, but I need to come in and say this. I think it is a good product. Um, I don't like the way that some of the marketing is disingenuous, that some of the fees are hidden. I think probably I would prefer... Given the choice, either Betterment or Wealthfront to Charles Schwab. But I think it's easy to get, you know, narcissistically obsessed by the small differences between them. And in the grand scheme of things, all of these three products are. Reasonably good product.
0: I would love I think, to see someone, like some third party, really try to measure the hidden fees.
1: I do think compare that, them. So, that that I, I would like to see that too. As someone who needs to think about these things, but just for putting money away. But yeah, I think there's also kind of just like a very basic, big picture issue here. You know. I think anyone who, who pays any attention to investing news has just for years now heard about passive investment, passive investment, passive investment is the best way to go, right? Right. And, and all yeah, of these are all, passive investment vehicles. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, you don't try to beat the market. You just try to... But doing passive aggressive... Uh, pa, sorry. Passive aggression. But, yeah. but doing passive investment isn't necessarily super simple either. And it does still involve a lot of choices, both on the part of what goes into these funds, how they allocate their assets, and also on the part of the consumer figuring out, okay, am I going to just make a very simple portfolio for myself using an eTrade account? Or am I going to pick one of these robots to
2: And the fact is that setting up an e trade account, doing it yourself, buying index funds, rebalancing them, making sure you're fully invested is a lot of work. And I don't think that most people can or should be doing that much work. Also, Kathy, I would say that there is no such thing as the amount of the hidden fees. Um, for the, like the opportunity cost of mm-hmm. the cash element of the Charles Schwab account is whatever you want it to be. You know, if you if you talk to the Schwab competitors, they'll say, "Well, it's the total expected return on the portfolio." If you talk to Schwab, they'll say, "Well, it's exact. We you wind up getting exactly the same." On the cash, as you would in an ultra short-term treasury bond fund, which is kind of the alternative in terms of safety and liquidity. So these things, (laughs) I think, you've
0: kind of proven my point, though, Felix. My point is this is actually pretty complicated. It is complicated, and it's not just about one dimensions of risk aversion. No, no one
2: is saying it is. But what I'm what I'm saying is that normal human beings neither can nor should be thinking too much about this kind of thing. And if you are that crazy to want to do all of this investment yourself and set up a brokerage account and try and minimize fees on your own, all power to you. I would never try to do that. I would never advise that anyone try to do that. These products are much better than the alternatives, which are like, I'm going to hire a wealth manager and pay them 1.5% to do this for me.
0: Uh, We can agree on that.
2: Okay. One more topic. Jordan, I, I believe <laughs> no, no, no. I believe there was I believe there was some kind of timepiece announced this week. There was week. there was a timepiece,
1: just a little one. So company you may have heard of called Apple had a finally debuted, showed off to the world a thing you might have heard about at some point called the Apple Watch. It's just a small little gadget. Um, no, so the Apple Watch you've been hearing about for months and months and months, and probably seen pictures of it even before now, finally has made its public debut. They've told us all what the price is going to be. And the big news there was that they are selling, aside from the normal, you know, sport and regular Apple Watch editions, which are about like start at $349, they are also marketing the Apple Watch edition edition. A solid, or not, a 18 karat gold uh, special timepiece that uh, sells for between, depending on the size you want, uh, $10,000 and $17,000. Okay, so the first
2: thing I need to say, Jordan, why is this the big news? I mean, this is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the Apple Watches which are going to be sold. Um, You know, we have this great new gadget which has been invented. Some people are going to love it, some people aren't going to love it. But in any case, 99% 99% of the watches are not going to be 18 karat gold. Why are you saying that the big news because, is the expensive Well, actually, no, I, no I, I'm going to back no, him up no, on this. Yeah, I, did, I, I
0: hadn't heard about the 349 version of it. Yeah, so <laughs> no, no, so
1: the, there is a reason why, and uh, Felix, which is that this, the fact that Apple, has, there, there's symbolic value here the fact that Apple is now selling a $17,000 bauble for your wrist um, kind of signals a shift in the company. It has never done something like this before. It's always sort of given... Er- there are a lot of people... or uh, To kind of put a headline on this that a lot of people have used, there are some people... Or there are some writers who are now saying Apple has, quote, sold its soul. Uh, that Apple... For the, whereas the, before this was a company that made high-quality electronics that were that were expensive but within sort of an up always within an upper middle class budget now they're going for the full on luxury market and this could like for we're going for the plutocrat market at this point you know the point um and this is not that in a sense this is not steve jobs is apple anymore this is a new apple and it's the sign of things to come and, and i don't see, know if i, I entirely agree no, that I com- that's it's I, selling its soul but this is so this I, is complete, I completely
2: disagree okay. with this entire analysis okay. it makes no <laughs> sense to me whatsoever
1: see i don't particularly think companies have souls so i kind of disagree that. Especially, um, especially apple they have accounting departments they do not have soul like spiritual like life forces however helix i want to hear why you disagree with it and then we can chat for it
2: so yeah i i don't understand this at all um the Apple Watch Edition is exactly the same as the Apple Watch Sport, except for the band and the you know the thing, the metal that surrounds the screen. It's the same watch. Yes. So it's not like Apple is is selling things to plutocrats that they're not selling to everyone. You can buy this three hundred and forty nine dollars watch, and you can get the same watch that you know if you, the only thing which you get which is different if you buy if you spend seventeen thousand dollars is that it's gold rather than plastic. So. I, don't, I see this as a way of Apple saying, of like democratizing things. They're basically saying, you know, if you want to spend money on jewelry, we will sell you jewelry. But if you just want the watch, you can get a $17,000 watch for $349. And I, I don't think this is a way of selling anyone's soul. I think it's actually a way of what's known as anchoring. That, you, that people, that they're making $349 seem cheap. By selling something crazy expensive alongside it, whereas you know, instead of saying this is three hundred and forty nine dollars for something which I never needed at all, and you know, the alternative was not to have a, a watch, and the alternative is zero.
1: I mean, I think more than anchor. I mean, my my actual feeling about why they're doing this, I should say, is that there there's there are two big markets known as India and China where that really really like gold. I have difficulty imagining even like you know millionaires in the U.S. actually shelling out for the the Apple Watch edition for precisely the reason you're saying, Felix, because fundamentally it is the same damn thing so, just with a gold clasp. However, maybe in some of the foreign markets where Apple's trying to extract more money out of, this could do well with sort of the, the the, you know, rising rich. However, I do think that there is sort of I mean, it's the first time that Apple's really introducing kind of class distinctions, I think, into their product line. And that is something that I think people at least the, the 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 cultists the apple obsessives are very aware of and i and are sort of some are upset about but kathy you're about my, to. my
0: question is and it goes to both of your questions both of your points um what is the audience for this is this actually meant for people who already have ipads or is this meant for people so who it is absolutely of a computer...
2: it is absolutely designed for people with iphones if you don't have an iphone it will not work yeah, you, it's, <gasps> no. yeah it's an accessory to an accessory because it, it's it's a smart gold. watch, but it doesn't have its own radio. It doesn't have its own um, cell reception, so you it needs to talk to your phone, which then gets all of the information. Man,
0: I I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. So you have to have an iPhone to make your your watch work.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: And um, okay. Well, that's the, so. It's not a computer in itself. No. Or not a functional computer. I mean, it has computer. it has a
2: small amount of computing power, but you, it's not a replacement for anything. It isn't. It isn't like it's a way of managing to get information even more easily than looking at your wait, phone. Wait, so
0: is this the, is the whole point that it's now considered rude to look at your phone during lunch, but you can still like sort of tilt your your wrist ever so slightly and look at your
1: watch? Yeah, looking at looking
2: at a watch during lunch is definitely less rude than looking at a phone. So maybe yeah, the, it'll, that's it'll, the
0: whole be,
1: appeal I hate of this entire thing. The problem is that you have to have like You know, a dynamic model for our expectations here. Eventually, looking at your if you're looking at your Apple Watch (laughs) during, that's going to become rude over time. Like, words are going to change. All of a sudden, looking at your wrist to see your email is going to become. I'm not a fan
2: of the Apple Watch as a product. I I think that. you know, watches which are dumb watches, which are just tell the time, are better than trying to look at a screen and tap a screen and draw hearts on a screen and navigate apps on a screen and call an Uber from a screen. Like, that's something which I feel, like, happens much more naturally on the phone form factor than on a watch form factor. I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to buy an Apple Watch, so probably you shouldn't be asking this. In fact, I wrote a piece on Slate explaining how there are horrible ne- negative externalities to the Apple Watch. Because if you're sitting in a movie theater and you happen to move your wrist, suddenly it will start shining screeny light all over the movie oh theater. Oh, gosh.
0: That's not good. Yeah. Well, my, my complaint about the Apple Watch, which is not a very valid complaint. I'm going <laughs> to... I'm gonna make a complaint that All I am preface as invalid, is that it's also like one of those streaming um, you know, quantified self gadgets and very intentionally so if you go to Apple's yeah. website. And I just think that's just not good. It's just not good for the world to have all that private data uh, streamed and not regulated. But on the other hand, the people buying the stuff are well off and I'm not worrying too much about them. That's why it's not a very valid complaint. As soon as I see that everyone in the world wearing a watch like this, I'll get very worried.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I'd I, like to take that a slightly different or I thought you might be taking that in a slightly different direction, which is just all this quantified self stuff. I think I Just can't, annoying? <laughs> yeah, I can't believe it's good for our psychology. No, like, it's annoying. I'm, like, right now, I'm like on a diet and it's. I'm quantifying myself fairly regularly. It, it's awful. It's I, awful. Ab, I absolutely cannot stand it. I'm sorry. It. Like, this I cannot. If the Apple Watch actually does like become a hit product, I I think collectively our psycho our, our, our psychology is going to take a hit. Our, our anyway, it's not good. It's you know. just
0: a waste of everyone's time.
1: Yeah. So,
2: so
0: we're well, not buying watches. A <laughs>
2: waste of time. <laughs> That's a good tagline for the Apple Watch. It's a waste of time. That <laughs> um, makes
1: you more neurotic. A, wa- a, wa- about- a waste of time and your mental health. That's-
2: <laughs> um, anyway. So I'm, I'm going to kick off the numbers round here because in, in the wonderful world of anchoring, I came across a particularly egregious example last <laughs> night. Um, so the Plaza Hotel. In... Oh, I can't wait to hear where this is going. <laughs> I cannot wait to hear. Anyway, go go on, Felix. <laughs> the, the The New York Times had a review of the Palm Court at the Plaza Hotel. Now, the Palm Court, the Palm Court at the Plaza Hotel, was this lovely place where people would meet and have tea, and has recently been reopened with a liquor license, and now you can ha- go and have a glass of Sancerre at the Palm Court at the, at the Plaza Hotel, and the review of the. Palmcourt mentioned, apropos of nothing in particular, that if you wanted to get a cocktail there, they have a lovely cocktail called the Blue Blood and Sand, which is a blood and sand cocktail made with Johnny Walker Blue whiskey. And that the cost of this cocktail was $75. Jesus Christ. (laughs) And I just, you know, I fundamentally, deeply loathe the concept of a $75 cocktail you know, if you are going to be drinking Johnny Walker Blue, I mean, that's a whole other qu- question which we can talk about. But don't be mixing it with orange juice.
1: <laughs> I, You know, so I, uh, I've only gone drinking at the Plaza once in my life. It was Christmas. I was with a friend. It was late at night and we were just walking by through New York. And I remember I, I spent $20 on a not very good cocktail surrounded by... uh at the next table there were two tourists who clearly were with a pair of escorts. And it was just like the least Christmasy thing that I'd ever <laughs> It was like the least Christmasy Christmas. Like, Family time. possibly but I feel like uh, I ran so, I just like that so, so don't, I have don't a feeling I have this, a waste of time. I have this feeling about <laughs>
2: cocktails that, you yeah. know, ten dollar cocktails are great. Fifteen dollar cocktails ought to be really bloody good. Twenty dollar cocktails. You're, you know, it's a way of getting people to pay for the location, you yeah. know. But $75 cocktails is a level of obscenity, which <laughs> I I just cannot abide. But here's the anchoring, because $75 is not actually my number.
1: Okay, what's your number?
2: My number is $3,000. No. The way that they sell the $75 cocktail is putting it on the menu next to a $3,000 sidecar. <laughs>
1: Why is there a di- do they like throw diamonds into it? Is or it something? gold? Is it, gold? Is it? It's got gold because dust. I, I've definitely seen that where it's like we're giving you a you know a sidecar or a martini, but it also has like a one carat. Did
0: you guys see sitting. the doucheburger? Did we talk
2: about the <laughs> doucheburger?
1: burger <laughs> hamburger wanna, with wait, what's gold. In the, what's in the three thousand dollars? So sidecar? the three thousand dollar
2: sidecar it does come in a Baccarat crystal coupe which you get to keep. But as someone pointed out on Twitter, <laughs> the kind of person who buys a $3,000 cocktail is not the kind of person who wants to keep a free glass. (laughs) Um, Putting it in their purse. It's it's Louis XIII cognac and 1960 vintage Cointreau and God knows what. But anyway, this is the way that you make a $75 cocktail seem not completely insane is by putting it on a menu next to a $3,000 cocktail.
1: Well done. Wow. Well done, Plaza. Um,
0: Yes. So I have, um, my number is 3 million. It's the, um, that's,
2: th- that's a thousand sidecar <laughs> cocktails. That's true. Only, um, only a thousand.
0: Yeah. It's a very different kind of number. It's, it's the, um, amount of fines that, um, that police departments find people in Ferguson in like, elect- I think it was 2013. Um, now, we're talking, the Department of Justice came out with a report about sort of the racist culture and this is the way that um, people were just charged all sorts of ridiculous fines and fees to, for operating costs of the city. And, and Marketplace did a good report on that. And, but and Marketplace mentioned that in Chicago, there's a $70 million um, uh, revenue from red light cameras. So that sounds like a lot more than 3 million. But on the other hand, there's 100 times more people in Chicago than there are in Ferguson. So, So can you just
2: explain here what is the connection between using fines as a revenue source on the one hand Mm -hmm. and racist police on the other?
0: Well, it was uh, so, first of all, lots of cities use fines. Right. So it's important to know that. Uh, And
2: not all cities which use fines have endemic racism in the police force. That's
0: a good question. uh, the idea is that it was highly targeted and um, and unfairly targeted towards towards blacks in Ferguson, so that was that i haven 't actually read the entire report so i don't i don 't know exactly how it came out, but i think there's basically there are two findings there's first finding is that there was unfair racial targeting, and the second finding is that they they depended way too much on fines and fees um, for their operating budget.
1: so they kind of snowball it 's the two yeah. fa- the two things combine and and kind of reinforce each other uh, My favorite thing about that 's the story of the fines as a revenue source is that apparently the judge who was key to kind of making this whole system work um, and was known for doing things like getting you know his friend or making sure his friends got their tickets written off and stuff uh, had a I believe it was a I, believes $136,000 lien against him for unpaid taxes. Oh, God, yes. That's um, right. <laughs> From the federal government. So, I mean, you can't get any... Usually corruption is a lot more, like, more subtle and a lot more complicated than that. But this was just, like, really old-school rank, like, local official hypocrisy. Although, I, mean, I have kind to say, amazing.
2: you know, there's, there's a lot of... People really hate the idea of fines as a revenue source. Well, because um, it influences the way you do policing. But...
1: Well, of course, fines are revenues.
2: Conceptually, I don't have a problem with it. I think of them as a Pikovian tax. I think of them as like, you want to tax the things you want less of, and if what you want less of is people running... No, red no, 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 but, yeah, but, no, no, But it doesn't work out that way is the problem. It is, in theory, yeah, I agree. It's, if it's could,
1: simply but...
0: an unfair tax on the poor, then it's not... Yeah, it's and that's, not, not, okay. that's how it works
1: out. Often. Well,
2: I think you should tax poverty because if you want... To less tax poverty. the things you want less, less of, then maybe people won't be poor. It's a anymore. very
1: neoliberal thing for me <laughs> to say. Felix, <laughs> I think you have a future in the Republican Party <laughs> like, as a Republican <laughs> advisor. I think you have. Um, so I, uh, yeah, but that judge, Jesus Christ.
2: All right, Jordan, what's your. Uh um, um, my
1: number mine a simple one uh my number is one one oh five which is how many dollars wait eight, one thousand one hundred and five no sorry it's um, one dollar sorry I was trying to say it without the dollar sign. my dollar is my my number is one dollar and five cents which is what a euro is trading for right now uh the euro has been on a just Downward crash, free fall, whatever verb you want to use to describe it. Um, in part, thanks to quantitative easing, which we've discussed on this show before. Um, and really, the way reason I'm bringing this up is just, you know, guys, book your vacations now. It's a good I was gonna time say, to say, go, yeah. Go, go. Parody is, it actually, it might be even good to wait a little bit longer because a lot of people think parody is coming or Deutsche Bank thinks it could be going down to 85 cents eventually. Um, so it's a good time to get that French vacation you've been waiting for.
2: And, yeah, just don't go to Paris. Go to the good bits of France. You know, that's I was, my that's I, my. Address. I was
1: just I was not too long ago in Paris and Lyon, and I loved. They were both lovely.
2: I I would I would just had a lovely holiday in the Loire Valley. I can recommend that. But those Parisians, honestly, <laughs>
1: you're the The, Brit, the Brit- They're almost as bad is, as the Brits. Yeah, the, the Brit is just like the <laughs> so is coming out. it's flaring up. Is there like a is no. there a term for that? I a, a would British say flare up. I America? would say
2: I would say go to Greece or Spain or somewhere. It's like an act charity. Portugal. Yeah. Portugal is amazing, amazing tourist. I'm estimation. actually
1: I'm heading to Portugal for part of my honeymoon, and I am very, very excited about it.
2: So, um, maybe next week, Jordan will tell us even more about his honeymoon plans. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask us nicely, you can email us at slate money at slate dot com and ask Jordan. Give okay, me. Ma- ma- a- I just a give bit you an of AM-
1: advice. A- a- How about we just have an AMA about Jordan's personal can,
2: can, life? Can we? Can we please ask you, dear Slate Money listeners, for advice on where in Portugal? <laughs> Jordan should go. Actually, that'd be awesome. I'm a big fan of the Western Algarve myself, but you know, we'll see whether whether you guys have other ideas. Um and and whether there's any good sort of Mozambican restaurants you can you can recommend in Lisbon. Um in any case, I'm afraid that is it for this week. Thank you all for managing to make it through the Apple Watch discussion and to the end. I'm oh, proud yeah, of that you. Was so much worse and... than the freaking target date discussion. <laughs> <laughs> that was... You know, some. <laughs> I think our listeners are nerds. I think our listeners yes. like nerding out on target date funds and correlation I and think correlation they, matrices. I think they need
1: some high low in, in the in the course of the, in the course of their listening. I'm just saying. So
2: send us an email, slate money at slate and say, do you prefer to listen about to listen to correlation matrices or do you prefer to listen to Gordy watches? We will take <laughs> take your emails under advisement. Um, So many thanks to Audrey Quinn, who was the producer for Slate Money this week, and also the managing producer, Joel Meyer, the executive producer, Andy Bowers. And as you know, Slate Money is part of the Panoply Network, so check out all of the podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Thank you.